Section 17 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Chapter 3 Concentration and the Sustained, Continuous Projection of Orders. A consideration of the experiences outlined in the last chapter in connection with the conscious use of the process of imitation leaves little doubt that this conception of employment of imitation involves specific attempts to gain an end. In other words, specific manifestations are selected for specific imitation. And thus the process of imitation becomes one of fixating on specific points or objects, that is, of what is known as concentration. This conception of concentration is a disastrous and narrowing one, if we may judge by the use of the word as revealed in practice and by the harmful manifestations which follow the intention of a person to quote-unquote concentrate. These harmful manifestations, becoming more and more exaggerated, according to the degree with which the teacher finds it necessary to urge the pupil to develop this doubtful acquisition. Whence came this idea of concentration? At what stage in the process of education was it considered necessary? There can be little doubt that the conception and use of concentration sprang from a desire for the ease, spontaneity, and healthy enjoyment associated with that use of the organism which is considered a successful one, and which is characteristic of people who are said to give their attention to whatever they wish to do. What has not been realized in this connection, however, is that only those children whose psychophysical organisms are functioning imperfectly and inadequately manifest such symptoms of mind-wandering as lack of spontaneity, of observation, of curiosity, etc. Granted, of course, a reasonable approach by the teacher. There can be little doubt that the child of, say, 200 years ago, was born with comparatively reliable instincts, adequate respiratory need, and all the necessary psychophysical equipment which would have made for satisfactory development, if the educational process adopted had been on a plane of conscious control, that is, worked out on the principle of the means whereby. Unfortunately, it was worked out on a subconscious basis, that is, on the end-gaining principle, and the harmful effects of the employment of this end-gaining principle grew very rapidly, until, at a certain stage in the educational process, the child exhibited, among other shortcomings, a lack of attention, or, as they say, mind-wandering. When this shortcoming, called mind-wandering, increased to the extent that it called for a remedy, what was more natural than that the educational experts subconsciously directed and controlled and dominated therefore by the end-gaining principle, should attempt to counteract it by some idea which would quote-unquote hold the mind, attention, to one subject or to one plan. Footnote. The recognition of the defect of mind-wandering and the remedy adopted for it has its parallel in the first recognition of quote-unquote physical deterioration and the remedy applied. The false principle underlying both remedies is the same. End of footnote. The word concentrate, according to the student's English dictionary, means to force or cause to move to a common center, to bring to bear on one object, 
the latter being the general acceptance of the word. Here then was the remedy. As we all know, it has been applied for many, many years, and today it makes a universal appeal in accordance with a universal belief in what the particular person conceives of as concentration. Make a search for a person who does not believe in concentration, and the results of your investigation will convince you of the truth of the foregoing statement. Introduce the subject to a friend, and for the sake of argument tell him that you do not believe in concentration, that in fact you believe the practice to be harmful in its effects. You will almost certainly be met with such remarks as, but surely we should concentrate our minds on what we're doing. How can we keep our minds on what we are doing unless we concentrate? One is naturally anxious to do one's best, and surely one's degree of success depends upon one's power of concentration. And so on. Again, people will tell you that they cannot work successfully except in perfect quiet, and that any interruption breaks the train of thought and many other points will be brought forward to support the speaker's belief in concentration. There is only one satisfactory way to end such arguments as this. The teacher who has worked on a basis of conscious control employs psychophysical demonstration in his attempts to convince, and in this particular sphere we are prepared to convince anyone who can and will trust his or her eyes during such a demonstration. Statements and arguments in connection with psychophysical activities should not be accepted unless the persons making them can give a practical demonstration of their truth, whilst evidencing at the same time that they themselves are in communication with their reasoning. By way of proof by demonstration, then, note the psychophysical manifestations of the person who believes in concentration during the acts of reading, writing, thinking, or during the performance of any other of the numerous daily activities. First observe the strained expression of the eyes, an expression of anxiety and uneasiness denoting unduly excited fear reflexes. In some cases the eyes may be distorted, and the whole expression one that is recognized as the self-hypnotic stare. Then turn your attention to the general expression of the face and pass on to the manifestations of the body and limbs. You will notice that there is an undue and harmful degree of tension throughout the whole organism. How could it be otherwise when the subject, instead of consciously reasoning out the cause or causes which has tended to develop his defect, is making a subconscious effort on the method of trial and error to overpower one set of imperfect so-called mental projections and physical tensions by a still more powerful set. For example, suppose a person is in the habit of performing a certain act, the act of sitting in a chair, for instance, with a great deal of unnecessary tension. And suppose his teacher points this out to him, and reasons out with him the means whereby the act can be performed without this unnecessary strain, giving him the necessary directions, series of orders, to this end, and the reliable sensory appreciation which the satisfactory carrying out of the orders demands. Suppose further that the pupil, instead of following these directions quite simply in the order in which they are given to him, starts, as he calls it, to concentrate upon them. What will he really be doing? 
in a specific way, he will be concentrating upon one order and comparatively neglecting the others, whilst in a general way he will be overpowering the new set of conscious orders which he is asked to give in connection with the act of sitting in a chair by a still more powerful set of orders which are in accordance with his conception of the requirements of the acts of concentration. This last proceeding being an unreasoned one on his part, all he accomplishes by it is to reinforce all the old misdirected activities subconsciously connected with the act of sitting down, whilst the new reasoned directions concerned with the acts go by the board. He sets up what I have described elsewhere as a state of civil war within the organism, with a greatly added tension and strain that always accompanies this condition. The point is most clearly brought out in the case of the pupil who is asked to sit quietly and do nothing whilst the teacher moves some part of his body for him. In my experience, as soon as the pupil is asked not to do anything, he will immediately show all those signs of strain and fixity of attention that he shows when he is asked to do something, and which we have learned to associate with any attempt at concentration. Point this out to the pupil, and he will answer nine times out of ten, I am trying to do nothing. He actually believes that he has something to do to do nothing. To such a point can we be led by our belief in concentration. This whole matter is most instructive, as showing the danger of applying a specific remedy to a psychophysical defect like mind-wandering, which has its basis in an imperfect use of the psychophysical mechanism in general. When a person has developed mind-wandering, there is present a condition of unreliable sensory appreciation and that undue stress and strain during psychophysical activities, which is always associated with imperfect coordination. To a subject in this condition, any attempt to supply a specific remedy is fraught with danger. On a plane of conscious control, such dangers can be escaped, but practically never on a subconscious basis. Now, as to the narrowing effect of so-called concentration. Those who are fortunate, or unfortunate enough, to undertake to act as teachers are well aware of the difficulty of finding an adult who can, as we say, think of more than one thing at a time, or perform satisfactorily, any evolution requiring the coordinated use of even two parts of the organism. Coordinated use of the different parts during any evolution goes for the continuous conscious projection of orders to the different parts involved, the primary order concerned with the guidance and control of the primary part of the act being continued, whilst the orders connected with the secondary part of the movement are projected, and so on however many orders are required the number of these depending upon the demands of the processes concerned with a particular movement. Ordinarily, in attempts to use two or more parts in remedial work, the primary projection ends with the correct or incorrect use of the parts concerned with the primary movement. This applies to all other projections concerned with other parts of the movement, and is another instance of concentrated effort connected with a procedure based on the end-gaining principle. The projection of continued conscious orders, on the other hand, calls for a broad reasoning attitude, 
so that the subject has not only a clear conception of the orders, essential, means whereby, for the correct performance of a particular movement, but can also project these orders in their right relationship to one another, the coordinated series of orders resulting in a coordinated use of the organism. It follows that an imperfectly coordinated use of the human organism is not associated with the broad reasoning attitude and the accruing benefits just indicated. And, as most people have developed, a more or less imperfectly coordinated use of the mechanism which involves reliance upon the end-gaining principle, it is not surprising that so many pupils have the habit of projecting unconsidered and disconnected orders, orders, that is, that have not been reasoned out from the point of view of the coordinated use of the different parts concerned, and which therefore result in a mal-coordinated movement. When therefore such a pupil comes for remedial work on a plane of conscious control and is asked to project a series of connected orders continuously, he naturally finds great difficulty in breaking the habit he has formed of discontinuous attention and of haphazard and subconscious guidance and direction. In fact, it will be found that, as a rule, a pupil has no conception of linking up the different parts of the movement and the orders relating to these. He may, as I say, give the primary orders or directions required for the first part of the movement, but as soon as that point is reached, he no longer attempts to carry on the primary order in association with that required for the secondary part of the movement, although the essential connection between these two parts may be pointed out to him over and over again. The chief reason is that he believes that he cannot bring his mind to bear on more than one point at a time. As he expresses it, I cannot think of so many things at once. This is entirely in line with the definition of concentration given above, but it represents a delusion on his part, because, of course, he has been bringing his mind to bear on several things at once subconsciously all his life, else he could not have carried out the simplest of his daily activities. A simple illustration will make this clear. Suppose a person who has been sitting down rises to speak to a friend who comes into the room. The stimulus to rise from the sitting position comes to him, and his response to this is his decision to stand up. Immediately this decision is made, the orders connected with the well-established habit of rising from the sitting to the standing position are projected to the psychophysical mechanisms involved, and the act of rising is performed, ending in the assumption of what is called the standing position. Suppose further that this person engages at once in an ordinary conversation or a scientific discussion with his friend for, say, half an hour. As far as our subject is concerned, he is absorbed by the requirements of the discussion. In fact, he will tell you that he must concentrate on the matter of the discussion in order to do his best. The point of interest for us is the consideration of the means whereby he remains standing, and of which he is not and never has been conscious. We have already referred to the projections which were associated with his decision to stand up, and these projections must be sustained until he makes a different decision, as for instance to move to some other position. It will be clear, therefore, that during the process of subconscious development, 
the human creature has also developed the ability to sustain continuous projections of orders. Insistence, therefore, on the necessity and importance of sustained projections in the work of coordination and re-education is based not on a new, but on a very old and fundamental principle in human development. The point of interest in all these considerations lies in the fact that this prevalent belief in concentration goes hand in hand with the acceptance of the end-gaining principle, as against the principle of thinking out clearly and connectedly the means whereby an end can be secured, and of bringing the mind to bear on as many subjects, continuous projections of orders, as is necessary for the purpose. The whole psychophysical tendency of the person who believes that concentration is essential to success and adopts and develops it as a practice in his efforts in different spheres of activity is to bring the mind to bear on one object. This exactly fits the end-gaining principle and is antagonistic to the means-whereby principle which calls for the ability to bring to bear on a dozen or more objects if necessary and which implies a number of things all going on and converging to a common consequence, continuous projection of orders. In the sphere of everyday life, it will be found that in the opinion of 99 persons out of 100, the consideration of means whereby, in connection with the use of the psychophysical self, will prove a hindrance or an interference. These people are confident that they cannot attend to two things at once, that is, to themselves and to their work, business or profession at the same time. It never seems to occur to them that their psychophysical self is the instrument or machine by means of which they carry on their business or profession, and that their standard of success, therefore, in this sphere of their business or professional activity, will be in accordance with the standard of functioning of this instrument or machine. This instrument or machine being the means whereby they will be able to carry on their business or profession successfully, it follows that due attention to the functioning of this instrument or machine is essential to the due and satisfactory attention to their business or profession. The confession, therefore, that they are incapable of carrying on, hand in hand, as it were, these two all-important and interdependent psychophysical processes, is tantamount to an admission that due attention to the means whereby they can gain their ends will render them unable to attend to these ends, which is absurd. Such a confession, indeed, fixes the stage in the evolutionary plane where mankind as a mass stands today. It certainly is not a very high stage when we take into consideration the potentialities of the human creature and the fact that in the development of the animal and the savage, the two processes concerned with the use of the creature's self and the use of that self in the activities of life were interdependent. In a world where the ordinary person not only believes in but practices what is called concentration, the conception of the word itself and of its practical application will be in accordance with the psychophysical defects of the individual concerned, who, on becoming conscious of certain defects, believes that what he understands as concentration will remove them. Once he has adopted this narrowing process, it is not surprising that he finds it impossible to do or think of more than one thing at a time. 
the harmful psychophysical condition thus established does not make for a satisfactory condition of all-round functioning. On the other hand, those of us who have watched the progress of pupils who have been re-educated on a general basis have had conclusive proof that it is possible for a person to learn to give due attention continuously to, i.e. to keep the mind on the means whereby of the satisfactory use of the psychophysical mechanisms, whilst employing these mechanisms in the round of daily life, whether this be a business or professional life or any other, and with the desirable result of a continuous development in general psychophysical health. The human machine is capable of doing many things at the same time, and in those cases where a condition of unified psychophysical coordination is operative, a condition in which the process of true concentration is present, the subject is as unaware of the operation of the process of concentration as he is of that of the process of coordination. As a matter of fact, it is unlikely that such a person will have given thought to the necessity for concentration. He will not have recognized the need for it, and, this being so, he will not have considered it in the light of a process requiring special attention in its application. The satisfactory conditions for coordination and the manifestations of the coordinated creature to which I have referred represent a form of concentration which cannot be secured by thinking of concentration, or by telling another to think of it, which also means that one cannot be concentrated in that sense of the word. This whole book is devoted to the exposure of the fallacy of asking any imperfectly coordinated person to attempt to eradicate a defect or peculiarity by some written word or spoken instructions. It is certain that any person who fails to concentrate, in the sense of giving due attention to the matter in hand, is an imperfectly coordinated person. To ask such a person to overcome his failure to concentrate by concentrating, or by learning to concentrate in accordance with his conception of these acts, is to cause a harmful and artificial division of personality. What is needed is the restoration of a satisfactory condition of psychophysical coordination on a general basis, which will involve the use of the true processes of concentration. End of section 17